Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're still possessed by demons and trying not to get obsessed with plot holes in Excalibur number 84, Dark Adapted Eye, in which Kitty wakes up with a wicked hangover and Kurt's got lots of memeable moments. Excalibur number 84 was originally published in December 1994, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell and Warren Ellis on writing, Derek Gross on pencils, Bill Anderson on inks, Joe Rojas on colors, John Babcock on letters and Suzanne Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing just one person on each task this this month just blows my mind don't worry my father's the forgiving sort well except when it comes to me triple espresso or hair of the dog no oh right both please tell me we didn't Did we ever? And I'm pretty sure we made Rosemary's baby. Oh, detective, it was extraordinary. The heat, the gymnastics. I mean, you had moves that made even the devil blush. This is bad. (laughs) Whatever happened last night, don't tell me. I'd rather not know. It's the new year, and we're still here talking mutants and magic and muddy continuities, but who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papar, and I'm especially fond of talking about gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture, in academic spots and public ones, and sometimes a little of both, like at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where I believe at the time of this episode dropping, Andrew and I will still be talking about Silver Age comics. There are so many mer people, you guys. Amazing. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and... Nothing that happens in this comic is his fault. He's demonically possessed, so give the guy a break. <laughs> I am joined, as always, by Mav. Please relay your obsessions. I'm, I was trying to decide which episode of our show that I wanted to go back to and do the um, and do the intro from. So I was just going to say I am the very model of a Maverick Major Domo. Oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow, Box Popcast, and on some other shows. This is like what I did from Mojo Mayhem because I've decided mm-hmm. to just rewind and just be a different character, a character that I used to be with no explanation. <laughs> that's what i've decided Fair. to do because it's my Fair. favorite moment of this comic is when is when brian does that he's like yeah i'm, I'm a different guy now don't worry about it that's my that's my favorite part of this comic I, I i love it so much beyond that i am a um teaching professor of digital interactive narrative and design or something like that i always forget my position name at the university of pittsburgh <laughs> <laughs> And the host of uh, another podcast called Box Popcast. And I do um, a lot of the same stuff Anna does, but somewhere else. (laughs) 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 Andrew, remind us of what possesses you. Mostly just anxiety about maintaining my chili pepper rating on Rate My Professor. Oh Um, my God. (laughs) I don't want to talk about that demon (laughs) site. Other than that, uh, I am co-project lead of Sequential Scholars. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. Um, and I don't know. I mostly write about Chris Claremont's work, which is fun. <laughs> you do many things. <laughs> but yes, do that frequently. Andrew has proposed that we tackle the Claremont's Revolutions uh, era for a future Sequential Scholars unit. <laughs> which I think is a good idea, (laughs) but that will be interesting to revisit some of those comics. 
So we are joined this week by a super smart returning guest who jumped at the chance to talk demons with us today. The pod is gleeful to welcome back Dr. Kate Coker. Welcome, Kate. Yay, thank you for having me. So I am a curator of rare books and manuscripts. My day job has me talking a lot about 17th century books and stuff. Sometimes that does involve talking about early modern magical practices, which is one of my favorite things. By night, I'm a huge friggin' nerd. Um, (laughs) I love (laughs) things like comics and genre TV and uh, overthinking all the things about those things. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's perfect. Yeah, one of... I sadly didn't get the mark I wanted on this essay, but one of the funnest things I did in grad school was uh, I had a course on, on Thomas Middleton, which, you know, I study pop culture and comics, but there are not enough courses to take in those areas when you're getting a PhD in literature. Yeah. So no, I have studied no, no, no. everything. <laughs> everything. Yes. Even though it seems like I only know anything about Nightcrawler and Lucifer, I have studied everything. <laughs> Nightcrawler and Lucifer are great. Just well, that. yeah, I know. But anyway, one of the funnest projects I did was I, I was doing a project on, on his play The Witch. And so I got to go to the Rare Books Library and look at a bunch of, you know... <laughs> magical manuscripts and monstieries and stuff and yeah it was the best i felt like i was in bprd for a week i was pretending i was abe sapien and i was so happy nice um anyway a minus on that paper which was unfair i worked so hard i worked the hardest that i worked on anything but i just not really good at renaissance drama anyway um kate i did want to talk about your interests a little bit more we already did your comics origin story and you spotlighted a few of your interests in your in your little intro there but yeah let's get into it like i know you've got an interest in the supernatural you've got an interest in some horror stuff you've obviously done scholarly work on vampires so i kind of wanted to ask you what draws you to the kind of genres you're interested in and yeah like why what's what's sort of your affection for some of these things honestly a lot of it has to do with Okay, so for one thing, like if you want to talk about Supernatural and you want to talk specifically about my great love for the TV show Supernatural. I'm happy like, to talk about that, Kate. <laughs> I mean, what's amazing to me about that is there are all of these incredibly laden tensions about class and sexuality and a whole bunch of things. And so in case you haven't been watching this incredibly dorky TV show for years, it's all about these two guys who are killing demons and other bad things and they are always wishfully thinking about the the house with the white picket fence and the restored nuclear family and blah 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 and meanwhile their real lives are these incredibly like homosocial relationships that are really (laughs) intense more than a bit homoerotic at times. <laughs> the fact that, especially in the latter seasons, like most of the women characters are platonic friends or mother figures is fascinating. There, there's so much that can go on. But in thinking about, as, as I was reading these issues of Excalibur, what kind of kept me thinking was this notion of what is demonic possession and what does mm. that do? And so in Supernatural, to to contrast with what we're about to be talking about, there is a mini plot in which our protagonist, Dean Winchester, becomes a demon. He is not possessed by a demon. He actually becomes a demon. And he becomes one of the Knights of Hell, which is like the most apocalyptically powerful, scary demons there are. And I remember when I was watching this on TV being like so excited about the possibilities of this. Like obviously they would be setting up for something like Buffy and Angelus-esque or something. Like now you have this good character who is uber bad but knows all the things about the good characters and it's going to be chaos and blood. And what Dean Winchester does as a demon is he has a bromance with the king of hell and again it's kind of homoerotic. They actually talk about sexy times that they have had both together and with other people. He sings bad karaoke and goes to strip clubs, and that's kind of it. That is the <laughs> evilest thing that they could think of, is for this badass guy to go have meaningless sex in shoddy hotel rooms and stuff. And in particular, there's a scene later on where he he's sort of gotten a grip on himself again, and what he has done is he has killed a bunch of human traffickers who are going to sell this teenage girl into prostitution. And we, the audience, have this frame so that we're thinking it's very bad that he's killed all of these terrible human beings. 
And I remember watching going, no, this is great. Could we have more of this? Could we have more episodes about just really nuclear annihilating sex traffickers? I would watch that show. I would watch seven seasons in a movie, right? (laughs) Yeah. So contrast that with like, you know, what what struck me here is like, you know, when when Kitty Pride starts feeling the effects of that soul sword that's corrupting her, I think it's hilarious that what she does is she puts on club gear, smokes, and is kind of a bitch. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I know, I know. Yeah, I want to talk more about that. It's just, I mean, it's sort of the Spider-Man 3 thing, right? Of like, oh, he's evil, so he's wearing eyeliner now and, like, dancing? Yeah, yeah. It, it has the, like, the, the, the like, uh, caricature emo floppy hair. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what bad is, people. It's bad fashion choices all the way down. Yeah, <laughs> You know, that's not how it should be. Evil should be associated with the best fashion choices. I firmly believe that. <laughs> the devil does indeed wear Prada, etc. But <laughs> that's a Lucifer thing. Never mind. Um, but yeah, I've, I'm interested in those questions about like what demonic possession kind of connotes and the different things that it does connote in different stories and in the story in particular. So uh, maybe let's just do the issue summary and come back to that because I love all the questions that you're raising already and that tension between how do we make a likable point to view heroic character (laughs) evil but not too evil and how are some of those tensions established because that's always hilarious and interesting for all the reasons that you already discussed all right so issue summary i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod we definitely get you the good coffee from the mainland but we can definitely explain the plot better than myra does as evidenced by this plot summary Excalibur number 84 opens with Kitty standing over Moira and threatening to kill her with a newly acquired soul sword. Then Kurt teleports into the room and tells her to give him the sword, suspiciously. No one knows Kurt is not Kurt. He has actually been possessed by the sorcerer Grave Moss. Megan busts in and a scuffle ensues. Kitty is knocked out by Brian and the sword disappears back into Kitty's stomach before possessed Kurt can grab it. Meanwhile, in London, Shrill hears that the soul sword has been sheathed again. She readies to go get the sword and destroy its owner. Back at Muir Island, Grave Moss's Kurt hides out on a cliff. Out of of the base's sensors. Amanda shows up and finds him a bit off, but his devilish charms convince her a moment before she confesses she is there to help Kitty, and Grave Moss Kurt tosses her off a cliff. Inside the base, Moira gives us some retconning backstory of the Soul Sword. We'll talk about that a little bit. When the alarms sound in Douglock's room, the good guys arrive to find Douglock on fire in the midst of a systems crash, while Kurt watches, seemingly innocent but not doing anything to help. To be fair, they don't know how to help Douglock without succumbing to the techno-organic virus. Finally, Kitty wakes up in the med lab and remembers pulling out the Soul Sword and punching Moira while smoking, but does not know why she did any of it. She unsheathes the sword and encounters Shrill, who says she regrettably must kill Kitty since she cannot have the sword unsheathed again. Grave Moss Kurt appears and tells Kitty that he can save her if she gives him the sword. Kitty senses something's up, but we'll have to wait for the next issue to see how it plays out. You can tell I wrote the summary in a hurry when I write sentences that are hard to say. <laughs> All right. Kate, we already hit up some of your first impressions, but let's get into a little bit more. Anything from this issue? You could talk more about the <laughs> Kitty's goofy rebellion if you want, but anything else from this issue that you're particularly eager to discuss? The other thing that really struck me, and it's one of those things that I wonder how well it aged. It, it, well, it doesn't, obviously it doesn't age well, but the, anyway, so there's the scene where like, because reasons, evil Kitty decides that the, what she wants to do is go into Moira's room, go through her closet and look through her clothes mm-hmm. for stuff to <laughs> wear and she finds like the closet of moira's dead husband and it's all of his stuff and uh it takes her a second to like figure this out and so the line that we are given is men's clothes never figured moira for a drag artist <laughs> yeah and choices choices were made but this is followed up like she 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 chooses this leather jacket that does look rather like good and she says how about that dead men's clothes suit me and honestly dead men's clothes suit me is like the name of the garage band i never knew i wanted until like i read this <laughs> what really struck me were like those early scenes where kitty is supposed to be going bad like like that kind of like slow building like i feel like story-wise like 82 go or excuse me 84 goes through a lot and then we just kind of end up 
like, 85 just suddenly has this, like, narrative conclusion with dun-dun-dun in, like, one page. (laughs) Yeah, so, like, we're sort of stuck in the interstitial issue here with number 84, where we've got, like, mostly Kurt being possessed and the artist having a lot of fun with that dynamic. (laughs) And, yeah, seeing Kitty take back control a little bit. I mean, one of the things I find interesting when we think about all three issues is how, like, the art is so different on all three and how that lends its sort Mm -hmm. of a particular vibe. Like, the hair in this particular one one in 84 is just outrageous <laughs> i want to spend 20 minutes talking about the hair <laughs> anyway uh we'll get back to some of that stuff yeah go ahead kate oh i was gonna say like I-, I love how like one of the things like grave monsters out there is the charles xavier looks like yul brenner <laughs> Yeah. It's <laughs> not wrong. But... Kind of a glow up for Xavier, possibly, but I'm willing to give it to him. <laughs> How about you, Andrew and Mav? How are you feeling about this one? How about you, Mav? Like it. Um, this is I'm pretty much where I was last episode, which is this is so much better than the last time we did exactly the story with Promethean Exchange. Because mm-hmm. it's not exactly the story. I mean, like, this is just even though no one's in character which is to say they're not, you know, who I want them to be and the storyline doesn't work the way I want it to be and the lore of the Soul Sword is wrong. Even with all that, this still feels like a story that someone wrote, which is to say someone <laughs> sat down at a typewriter and made decisions, someone being Warren Ellis, made decisions <laughs> about if we have point A and point C, there can be a point B which gets us there. You know, there is a a course of events might unfold (laughs) that has causes and effects and like there's a logical progression and I shall call this thing a plot. It appears as though someone made that decision. So yay. Um, I mean, I mean, like, I I don't know that I love it as much. I like the art a lot. I'm not super familiar with Derek. I'm not. uh, I'm not either. It's like Derek Derek Gross. Gross. But I found the the artwork to be very storybookish and sort of fun and refreshing. But like, it it is very much a, you know, it's a pacing issue. And it's trying to course correct a lot of stuff that I think Ellis wants to do. So I mm-hmm. I enjoy it, I guess. Yeah, I, well, I mean, we sometimes give shit to, like, interstitial issues because it's like, oh, this issue didn't move the plot forward as much as you want or whatever. But, I mean, that's not always the point. I mean, if the atmosphere is good, if the individual moments are good, like, that could be the appeal of, like, an interstitial I, issue. I think it moves it more than, than we might think because we get a lot of characterization here that sort of matters like so did it move the plot forward well you know we sort of had kurt possessed in like the last page of you know of last issue and now we're going to get to deal with that so we needed to we needed to unfold that story we needed to unfold the story of exactly what is going on with kitty because you know she was being weird and then we you know we got some characterization and some explanation of what's going on with amanda like i i think there's a lot of moving pieces there's not so much direct punchy punchy fighting and there and there's even some of that right like there's some but i don't think everything needs to be you know in movie terms fighting the giant sky beam in the third act right like, yeah, yeah you know yeah. like i actually think that there's some good progression here for what is a three-part story it's the second act and there's a lot of dramatic clashes and moments mm-hmm. and splashes in this issue that are that are really fun i thought andrew how are you feeling about it i think i agree with mav um i, I think it is moving more more than it maybe looks I, I think more than anything this is sort of the payoff the the, the enemy within story mm-hmm. and i think that's very dramatic and i kind of like kurt being on the other side of it for one time in his life uh, where he's usually the victim of people impersonating um, um people close to him um so i thought that was kind of cool for me one of the issues i had with it is um the tone especially when we're trying to launch grave moss as an intimidating villain which we oh. did <laughs> at the end of last issue uh, yeah. this issue is a little too slapstick for me as much as i enjoy some of the artwork that comes out of that and i, I think i had mentioned before the pod that i wanted to defer this question to hannah because i argue that they're gross is, is having more fun drawing kurt than anyone since cockram um, so my question, because like I don't know how I feel about it, my question to Anna is: Do you like the way he's drawing Kurt as kind of a puppy with a wagging tail, but also <laughs> like pontificating with his tail to his chin and stuff like that? Like it's really expressive and interesting. The consistency and the characterization are maybe problematic, but then again, it's a possession story, so maybe that's okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I wanted to hear what Kurt's PR manager 
thought about this portrayal? Well, I think it gets back to that question of how we manage demonic possession. So maybe actually I will once again defer the question to talk about that a little bit and then I'll come back to it because I want to bring Kate back into the conversation. But yeah, so Kate, you already brought up that dynamic about what demonic possession means or what it looks like. And in your example, he actually becomes a demon. So it's a little bit different. But as someone that I know is familiar with many of those types of narratives, I mean, to your mind, what are some common ways that we kind of see demonic possession happening in stories like what are some of the rhetorical uses of 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 that kind of conceit i mean quite often what it does is it kind of like removes a sense of responsibility Mm. from the character um like in you know buffy and angel there's always this idea of like once your soul has been replaced with that of the demon you're, you're, you're basically just pure id you do what you want to do right and consequently what you choose to do with that becomes even more interesting the, for instance i'm thinking like the origin story of the character spike from buffy and when he becomes a vampire we think of him as the big scary guy early on when he's a vampire what's he still doing he's still like writing bad poetry and trying to take care of his <laughs> silly mother yeah this is who he is at his base most thing before he outside circumstances force him to become a genuinely scary person that is an interesting choice again going back to supernatural it's the same sort of thing that you this idea of you were just unabashed delightful gleeful sexuality and violence except when you're like wanting to sing bad karaoke why does bad art always come into things I, i'm just now realizing this <laughs> and, I have. and one of the things like to, to go back to like you know the history of quote-unquote real magic you know one of the things that i always think is interesting is this idea of like why would you ever try to like engage with demons at all like at this point it seems like solidly terrible planning in every single way but the lore if you will the, the the kind of early logic of things was if you were trying to summon or control demons and make them do things for you you are reasserting the celestial order of things mm-hmm. because it's supposed to go god angels humans and then demons and so if you as a human are bossing a demon around you're actually proving what a good and godly person you are and that's something like we totally like lost over a couple of centuries right this idea of bossing demons around is a good thing now if you want a shortcut to you know an evil character it's like they want to boss demons around they are right out yeah and, th- and that's what grave moss is doing right it's like th- it's like this whole metaphysical power game where he's doing all of this bad stuff because chaotic evil yeah that's interesting right i mean it's like the idea of summoning a demon takes on a different context in different contexts which yeah that's such an interesting point yeah i don't know i was the thing i just kept thinking about uh, was this is like a, such a weird tie in but i mean i'm 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 teaching gender queer uh this this winter term in in my comics course and there's a line from it near the beginning talking about Uh, a creative writing course and the professor in the creative writing course has this exercise where the students are supposed to write down their personal demons and it made me so angry (laughs) like so angry and then I had to like sit with that feeling for a while and why does that prompt make me so angry and I know partly it's my experiences with religion that make me a bit angry about a question like that I don't like the offloading of sort of emotional things onto an outside presence that has nothing to do with you which some religions teach I don't like that so it's that but I don't know just also the idea of there being something separate from you that's evil influencing you I just don't think for me that's the benefit of what a demon story can be because I think as Kate was saying it should be an extension of who you are not an outside force acting on you and yeah I don't know I anyway I just I read that prompt and that I was like man if I was if I was 19 and in the creative writing course I would I know exactly what I would do <laughs> I would like <laughs> I would start writing a diatribe about how that's a dumb prompt and then I would do a list of all the demons that I have crushes on and I'd be like nailed it (laughs) (laughs) what are your personal demons nailed it (laughs) but I mean I'll put that question back to Andrew and Mav I mean to your mind what's sort of the benefit of a demonic possession story this is something we've talked about on the pod briefly before but we didn't have as much chance to talk about it as we do now I mean how about you Andrew I I think it's 
what we've been, I mean, kind of intrinsically implying at least a little bit uh, on our last episode, I, I think it's a cipher for character. It's a great way to show the other side of the character, the demons metaphorical that they're battling and um, all the stuff that they're repressing that they would like to cut loose with, uh, again, as um, Kate was saying, the id. Um, so it can be really revelatory and can do a lot of character building that can benefit, you know, future story arcs again and again and again so there's an opportunity here with kitty particularly for a new writer coming in to push her in a different direction uh, and to create a little bit of progression for a character who as we talked about lovedell really didn't know what to do with uh, and, and who came kind of stagnated um so that's what i want to see and i don't really see it in this possession story um i, I think there's some stuff that could go places but it doesn't really go that way for me yeah and i mean i keep referring to it as demonic possession it's not straightforwardly that it's like an evil uh, like you know it's a cursed object influence on kitty and then in kurt's case he's possessed by the sorcerer but it very much plays out the way tropey demon possessiony things often play out where he is reconfigured as evil doing all these things that he wouldn't normally do and is even cartoonishly evil as as andrew Mm -hmm. mentioned but um yeah i don't know how about you mav any thoughts about all that stuff i i think that there is a lot of value in the concept i'm more forgiving of it than you are i think but only because i want it to be sort of interesting in the story but like i i I don't know that this goes anywhere super interesting we were talking about like the fact that you know oh look she's possessed so she got hot you know like that's like (laughs) that's that's like how much work's put into it and then by the end of the story (laughs) she's just kind of in a hospital gown again and she's fine and like it is escaping too easy and for the character that kitty is it's almost sort of more interesting if it's just like look i'm 18 now so i've decided to start dressing sexier you know, like yeah. I, I i i grew up i i wanted to make a change it, it's fine in the same way that like in the modern incarnation of her becoming kate there's not really a story there it's just like she's like look i'm 27 i don't want to be called kitty anymore so can we not and then like half the characters still call her that like i like i which that rings true to me so like i i feel like they're kind of trying to have it both ways in this in this story a little bit that said i find conceptually possession stories to be interesting because it's the mystical metaphysical version of you know i'm I'm on drugs now so this is the real me mm-hmm. um like that's the like that's kind of where what they try to do it do with it i like when it's goofy one of my favorite movies is idle hands I, which is a which is a movie that is ridiculous um <laughs> if you've ever seen it with devin sawa um and jessica alba it is so stupid seth green's in it foggy and, nelson yeah oh god i i love it so much <laughs> I, and but it's it's just ridiculously dumb and it's this concept of you know hey it's not me it's the demon that's possessing my hand which is just so dumb and so great <laughs> So, so I feel like that's what's happening with the story here. It's like I've been possessed by a demon, so I'm going to wear a bare midriff T-shirt and smoke a cigarette. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh heavens! <laughs> oh heavens, no! Uh, she also put the cigarette out on Moira, which wasn't great. <laughs> I, I I mean I guess yeah I, I mean, <laughs> I mean I, it's no, virus. I, so I, don't know. I no I mean like 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 I like I get it I it's just it of all the evil things I right know, it's I not know. like it, you know it's not like I have been possessed by a demon so now I am sacrificing a baby to Satan that's not what happened you know like Scarlet Witch style or anything like that it's like no no I'm gonna have a smoke that's what I'm doing the <laughs> that's demon what I'm doing with my, with my possession <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and then in this story, you know, there's the fight. But seriously, at the end of the story, Kitty's fine. She's like, oh, my God, I smoked a cigarette. How gross. Okay. Like, sure. I it, tweeted that I, one I, out as, yeah. as Kitty waking up on January 1st. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, it kind of works, though, because if it's sort of that id thing, I mean, it's like not everybody's id is interesting. Like, maybe you just want to goof off, and especially for Kitty, who's somebody 
that is such an overachiever kind of just like being such an underachiever as a demon almost works for me i'm making the story work for myself but man, let me come back to you kate for some of the gender aspects of this you know when we're specifically talking about possession stories and female characters i mean what are some of the things we sort of expect or look for i mean i was curious about the sexualization that we have here and it's not it wasn't something that I had like a problem with necessarily. I think it could have certainly gone more extreme than it does. And I think that the art here is quite stylized in ways that I think is very redeemable. But I was curious of whether, whether you had thoughts about that. Because I know on your last appearance, we did actually talk about that a lot with Megan and her vampirism and some of the tropes bound up with that. So I was curious about your reaction to that here. Like, did you find any of the any of the sex or gender stuff interesting here? Or did it just fall into tropes for you? Well, one of the things that really struck me is, you know, there go going back to that scene where she she wakes up in the medical bay and she's in like the littlest little hospital gown <laughs> that, that, that could be and, and she's normal you know maybe i've spent too much time in doctor's offices as an adult but what really struck me is like there there is a particular vulnerability of women in medical situations yeah. so you know to have someone who, who is a superhero who does have superpowers even if you know sometimes she is you know i mean how old is she supposed to be at this point she, oh. the thing about kitty is like her, her her age was like so nebulous for a while and like i remember if i recall correctly they even have something like she has like two different yeah 15th birthday parties yes. over the years yep. or something. Yes. And then yeah. at some point later on, like when she hooks up with Pete Wisdom, she may be sixteen or she may be eighteen. No, she's that is she's clearly clear. contextually she's clearly at least a high school graduate in the well, I mean, it hasn't been mentioned in Ellis's run yet, but it's very clear from other things that she is at least eight. Well, I don't know about eighteen because she's in Britain, different system, but it, she's implied to be an adult, but a young adult. Mm -hmm. So she's probably yeah, so she's it, probably eighteen ish. Yeah, and so like okay, so now you have like th this thing of like you know the th this teenager who who you know you have dual vulnerabilities here, right? You're you're mm -hmm. in a medical situation. You're in this little gown. You have this soul soul sword that you're like pulling out of like your lower abdomen. Yeah. <laughs> um. And again, like oh gosh. What you know, th th this kind of like sudden like realization of bad things that you have done, even though they're actually like again not super bad. Um, and the fact that like when when um when Shrill shows up and is like, well, you're a stupid kid, but you're not evil. You're just ignorant. But that makes you know I'm gonna have to kill you. But oh well. <laughs> and th there's a dismissal there. I think is really interesting. You, you take the you take this woman's vulnerability and then you dismiss it with this intent to destroy them. Yeah, there, 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 there's some stuff there. Yeah, I mean, I don't, oh, I don't want to like read too much into it, but I'm just you're talking about women in medical situations and stuff, and I was just like, oh, it's sort of like she's got like a haunted womb because she's like pulling that out of herself in the medical situation. Oh, mm. right, that's interesting. Right? Yeah. And, and I mean, like if they had drawn it a different way, like. You know, if it had been point out, we could have gone, ah, metaphorical phallus. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it wasn't. More so last issue, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's depowering rather than an empowering explicitly yeah, that's interesting yeah i mean i was curious about we talked about this a little bit in the last issue but like about whether her possession is empowering or disempowering and i think it's a little bit of both it just depends how you read what happens and how you read some of the imagery and you know <laughs> it's dumb to reduce things to that because you know there could be a subversive charge to some of these images and we talked a lot in the last episode about the scene where she's standing in front of the mirror with the sword sort of emerging from her stomach and like it's a it's a reflection so i mean is that a fantasy self is that a nightmare self it's very unclear the way it's rendered and i found that a very interesting image and some of the images here where she's sort of empowered and disempowered by the sword i think can function similarly but yeah i mean i again i wasn't sure how much to i don't like the discourses of female hysteria that are bound up in megan that's nothing new we've had that in the book many times and we had that even in the last issue that kate joined us with which was excalibur number 30 because like how many times in the past year of comics has megan just shown up had a fit and people are like jamming a thing in her neck and knocking her out i'm a bit tired mm -hmm. of it 
and I really would like to move past this. I mean, it's happened well, well, multiple eventually. times in two issues now. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. So that I had an issue with. I had an issue with that more than I had an issue with the portrayal of Kitty because at least Kitty gets some more agency and like gets to contemplate what happened. But I don't know. Andrew and Matt, did you have thoughts about sort of the gendered aspect of any of this stuff? I have one in particular. Um, sure. And it's, I don't even know if it's supposed to be gendered so much as it's just, I mean, it is somewhat, but the fact that Britannic is able to uh, Vulcan neck pinch Kitty bugs me. <laughs> so, so oh. dumb. <laughs> Um, it, it, but I mean, I, I, I'm okay with him saying, look, I'm a scientist. I'm an omni scientist, you know, uh, like all, I, I guess he was a physicist. I know where all the nerves in the human body are. Sure. I guess whatever. But the fact that he does that and then he is able to knock her out when literally her power is to become intangible. She's been doing it at the first sign of danger since she was 13. And then let's say she doesn't become intangible because she's being controlled by soul sword nonsense. The entire point of the Eldritch armor is that it appears and protects the wielder of the soul sword from, you know, stuff like this. So so it was it was a weird choice. I, I mean, I, I understand why it's there. It's there to show you that, you know, Brian is reemerging from Britannic because because Warren Ellis doesn't want to deal with this nonsense is basically what it's. For. So it's so, wrong. Yeah. And, and that's why it's used. Um, but it but it was a weird way of doing it. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, maybe we better talk about the soul sword stuff a little bit in the continuity stuff, because I just other times where we've talked about Kitty having the soul sword armor. And again, this is something else we talked about a bit on the last one, you know, problem of doing a three-part story arc but when the soul sword and the armor was configured more directly as a piece of iliana's soul you know kitty Mm -hmm. wearing that armor has a certain charge to it and can be a certain erotic charge can be a certain romantic charge can be a certain friendship charge whatever it is but when that's stripped away here i'm so much less excited about that imagery than i was so okay so some of the continuity stuff we're talking about so moira gives the explanation here that iliana kid iliana transferred the energy of the sword or something to kitty while she was dying from the legacy virus this isn't really consistent with what we've had before the last time we saw the sword was in promethium exchange prior to that we had it in a rock outside of the lighthouse and Excalibur mm-hmm. number 11 prior to that Kitty inherits the sword and armor during Inferno which she assumes mm-hmm. happens because Ileana has died which is what happens because Ileana gets reverted to her child form so there's a time paradox here where because Ileana reverted to her child form the trauma that happened in Limbo wouldn't have happened so she wouldn't have the soul sword so that's very confusing that's and, dealt with in, yeah. in Inferno though like it did right. have it did so Inferno very specifically points out that even though because of the magic of limbo Il, they're worried wait so did Ilyana not not exist and they're the new minutes decide no she clearly did we remember her we we loved mm-hmm. her so like it is a i mean it is a paradox but it is intentionally a paradox that yeah. Ilyana existed and then sacrificed herself which is why the sword which is specifically why the sword is still ex, still in existence in excalibur it's um it's not really explained in excalibur but it is very clearly explained in before new minutes becomes exposed that part's fine. What's weird is how did the sword get into Ilyana in order to have the magic exchange here, which doesn't work. And Ellis knows it doesn't work. Or if Ellis doesn't know, then um, then Harris knows. They know because there is a line, there's a throwaway line that Shrill has where, and I wonder if this was just drawn in after the fact that they made the letter or add it because this is, I tried to obtain it from a previous holder, the demon Darkoff. I failed. He still regrets having met me. And then asterisk, um, story yet to be a story told. yet to be told. <laughs> yeah. Pursues. Um, a story yeah. still yet to be told. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Waiting for that one. Be. Um, <laughs> because like this is literally like, look, okay, if you are the one person on earth who liked Promethean Exchange, we know we don't care. Fuck you. Like that's basically what it is. Like it's that's not where the sword was, and this is them acknowledging that that's not where the sword was, and we just don't care. Like there's no way that like I don't buy that there was somebody being tapped to like do that fill-in issue later and it just didn't happen this is not brian being lost in the in the time stream this is them not caring and like mm-hmm. no one is clamoring for this shrill versus dark off story like that's that's not a thing that anybody on earth is looking for yeah yeah i mean i just yeah again we talked about this a bit 
last issue, but it's just it made me feel so dumb because I was like, wait, this doesn't make sense. And then I had to look up the it whole trajectory of the. I mean, I can buy it in the sense that okay, like Kitty and Ileana have the soul bond, so the sword kind of goes back and forth between them. But at the very least, Kitty shouldn't be ignorant of any of this. She knows all of this stuff that happened with the sword. She knows that she is the possessor of the sword. So having her be ignorant of that that doesn't. It's make happened any at sense. least. It happened at least three times while Ileana was alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably more. Yeah. It happened when the Beyonder did it. It, happened. it is not weird at this point. In fact, I, I believe if Ileana's just unconscious, Kitty gets it in, in, in some in some cases. Like she, like she is aware that she is the secondary holder of the Soul Sword. That is not new for Kitty. Yeah, and her ignorance makes it less gay, which I don't like. Um, <laughs> but um, let, me, let me come back to you, Kate, with another question about, uh, I don't know, how do I want to phrase this? I just, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the visualization because, I don't know, there's such a feminine energy to kind of the visualizations here, sort of with that extreme emphasis on sort of hair. We get a lot of ultra close-ups of like dramatic female faces. We get the wonderful splash page with Shrill performing magic with these like swirly stars and like everything which is like very gothic but like fabulous and disco as well but i was wondering if you had any thoughts about kind of the visual atmosphere of this comic or whether you found it interesting so one thing that i i noticed and this is where you know some of my comic ignorance is going to come in i think there is the scene where it is possessed kurt and kitty facing off and I'm looking at the hands and yeah, just anyway, like Shrill has her, her has her like hands in this gesture that I associate with Kung Fu movies. <laughs> and I don't know if this is a gesture towards Doctor Strange it's as a Doctor Strange magic point, yeah. as it is done in Marvel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's how you yeah, do yeah, magic. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that's <laughs> totally a do- <sighs> Doctor, that's that's t- those are totally um, what, what I would call Ditko fingers. It, it is a Doctor Strange pose. <laughs> totally, <laughs> that is a that is a thing you do. You you have you have the two finger point, and then you have the devil horns point, and that's how ma- and those do different things, and that's just how magic works in in Doctor Strange world. <laughs> did we talk about did we talk about Ditko's fetishization of hands when we talked about Ditko? I don't remember. It's a topic I don't that remember. interests me. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Kate. Remember, go ahead. Yeah. It, but it's totally a thing. That is, yeah. Those are those are Ditko fingers. And if you think about it, Spider Man also does Ditko fingers when he's shooting the web. It's it's like a, it's totally a thing. <laughs> so. He really likes drawing hands. It's very sensual. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Kate, please go ahead. It's just, I mean, it's a striking, it's a striking visualization there, it, it, and you know, and it, it's contrasted with Grave Moss slash Kurt's. His hands are going in the opposite way, and then in the middle is Kitty holding her sword, but she looks all like she's suddenly drawn somehow like more childlike. Mm-hmm. Like that picture of her in the center with the messy hair and holding the sword up in front of herself very closely, like, she looks like nine. It, 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 it strikes me as being disempowering again somehow. And I mean, I don't hate that because that builds up the tension to we're going to get the yeah. fight between Kitty and Kurt in the next issue. And again, it's just so difficult because we have three really different art styles on these three issues. And I believe we're going to get Lashley back for the next one. And it's going to be quite different than this one, which I, again, just different in so many ways. I mean, we could just list them, but, but yeah, <laughs> splash page. I mean, okay, well, let's talk about the Kurt stuff because it's relevant to that image and the ways that that is kind of, you know, inverting what we expect from Kurt. I mean, I have a painting on my wall right now behind me that's Kurt doing the open hand gesture from X-Men Red saying, take my hand. (laughs) It's a very Kurt thing, you know, symbolizing, you know, the embrace of difference through embracing his hand. It's an image that comes up a lot in X-Men comics and it's obviously being used against type here to be a demonic embrace. Andrew wanted my thoughts about it. So I don't know, like, there's a danger of like doing demonic nightcrawler stories for a number of obvious reasons. I think we talked about this early in the pod that when he goes into the inferno space, it's very deliberate that he doesn't 
get influenced by it and we propose various reasons for that that you know he's not as susceptible to demonic possession because he's someone who's already reckoned with his personal demons and that's not really an issue for him and i do like that as a through line for the character because that's part of the way that the character plays against type and that's why i always get angry with those stories that some stuff going on like that right now where it's sort of like oh his conflict is that you know am i a demon am i a human whatever and i'm like yeah that's boring though like, isn't it more fun if, like, he looks like a demon and he isn't actually, and that's actually never his conflict? Because that's what makes the character interesting. That's what makes him different mm-hmm. than other characters. And so demonic possession stories are risky for the character in that way, because you risk sort of reducing the character to that. I'm willing to give this one a pass because it's just so obviously out of character. He's explicitly possessed. It's explicitly not anything to do with him. He is not in control of his body. So it doesn't like bother me in that sense. But well, like he's being piloted. Yeah. This is not I, I think yeah. there's a it the book tries to very explicitly say Kitty is being corrupted by the sword, but Kurt's not in there right now. That's Grave Moss. Mm-hmm, That's Grave mm-hmm. Moss, you know, puppet mastering the body. Exactly. Right. And it gives the artist, as Andrew was saying, a lot of leeway to do a demonic version of Nightcrawler. And the interesting part of that is you can read into that subtextually that, you know, Kurt could like look like more of a demon depending on how he chooses to represent himself you know, in all the ways that we represent ourselves physically, our facial expressions, our poses, the way we talk, the way we walk, the way we smile, you know, all of these things, which, you know, we cultivate as part of our identity. So it's interesting when you have demonic Nightcrawler looking so demonic and you sort of think, well, he could look like this all the time if he chose to look like this. And we've seen so instances of that, that, you know. code switches as human? I do. <laughs> like, I do. Okay. I mean, that's, I mean, that's an argument, right? I mean, it's, it also, it has the weird racial tension of mutants and, yes. you know, what is Kurt? But like that, I think that is a reasonable, you know, yeah, okay. He's performing human humanity as opposed to performing deem, demonosity i think it's it's supported like through mm -hmm. i think it's supported textually think about something like we had the two pinups back in uh, i am gonna get this issue right in excalibur 17 we had the two pinups we had the pinup of alan davis doing a version of the old uncanny team and then him doing a version of the excalibur team and people were sort of replicated in the two images and then the uncanny version of kurt was more hunched over shorter kind of you know um, posed more quote-unquote demonically versus the Excalibur version of him was standing up straighter, right? And you think about something like God Loves, Man Kills, where Kurt intimidates the guy into thinking he's going to bite him with his fangs by looking very demonic, and then you get uh, Anderson's art switching to cute Kurt, sort of a panel later where he smiles with like cute fangs poking out. So there is some context for that and some sort of textual evidence for Kurt being able to present himself differently and for that being a character-based thing where he's growing into himself and decides to present himself differently. And <laughs> that is very much sort of a fan-in version of Alan Davis' Kurt you know, how much more kind of, uh, I want to say conventionally sexy he is when Davis draws him compared to some previous versions of the character. I think that's a bit reductive, but I think that that's also fair. Mm -hmm. And like increasingly over the years too, you know, when Davis draws him in 21st century comics, I think he actually makes him too pretty in a lot of ways. But yeah, I don't know. So seeing him being presented demonically here, I think was interesting in that context. In terms of the humor element of it, I'm not sure. I definitely like these panels get like shared and stuff for for comedy value in fan spaces sometimes. The one where he's wagging the tail I've seen around quite often. But I don't know. Did you have thoughts about it, Kate? What was your mileage on goofy demonic Nightcrawler? I was kind of irritated because I guess I assume the same sort of thing where, you know, if you have someone possessed they're going to be sexier and it's like I mean, that's true oh my god I mean, okay so here's the thing like default nightcrawler is it, he, he is pretty sexy they are very good at like drawing his highlights shall we say um th- there's like the one little like frame where kind of comically he's like i have an idea like page 23 and you know he like his tail is touching his face and he has mm-hmm. like this big joker joker-esque grin and it's like that's dumb that is not hot <laughs> you, could, you could be like seducing and Whoa. stuff and 
bring forward the plot that way. And that would be really interesting. It would also be heavily in line with how we treat, you know, demonic possession or, or demonic dealings in popular culture is like transgressive sexuality. Shit, and you completely ruined it. You've completely ruined it for me, Kate. I'm just like picturing a complete other comic now where he just goes <laughs> into like <laughs> loungy hypersex Hashtag mode and I'm Kate like, ruins oh. everything. It is what I do. <laughs> I do want that comic more because yeah, it goes it goes in the opposite way. Yeah, I mean he's desexualized if anything here, even though there's the sexual threat in the scene with Amanda, which that scene was complicated. That was the one that I did have a lot of complicated feelings about because I get that he's possessed and everything, but still seeing Nightcrawler commit sexualized violence, and it's not sexual violence, but it's sexualized because of the context of him seducing and flirting her and then throwing her over the cliff she'll be okay though don't worry well is he seducing her i, I i'm not clear not on that really. i think she yeah. i see I, i'm actually and it's weird because who knows and we've you know we've avoided this entire episode but like i i understand the alice of it all but we've not talked about it that yet and and again reading it back then we wouldn't have known any of the alice of it all but like i don't feel like grave moss is necessarily trying to make it sexual obviously no, amanda yeah. has that expectation because they're in a sexual relationship right like so but like essentially what i feel like is supposed to happen is grave moss realizes oh i saw brian do this thing earlier so i guess i can do a vulcan neck pinch okay <laughs> like, I, I think that's how he learned it, right? Like, he is doing the same thing. It is very intentionally, look, Brian did this thing, so now Grave Moss knows that you can knock somebody out just by tapping on the back of their neck, right? And, but look you know, at how it's drawn, though, right? Like, like yeah. Nightcrawler has, like, the three fingers, but the way it's drawn there, I, maybe I just have a filthy mind, but that looks like a dick to me. <laughs> I, I, well, I think Nightcrawler's fingers always look like dicks because they're, they're three fingers and, and they're thick, right? Like, like that's just how, that, that's his fingers. These are great points. Yeah. I think maybe specific to Anna's point, though, like Gra Grave Moss specifically says he's accessing Nightcrawler's memories to exploit mm. the sexual relationship that he has with Amanda, right? Mm -hmm. So there's there's okay. a trading on it there that I think does yeah. sexualize the scene. That's fair. And yeah. she's drawn in a sexy way, like that frame where she says Hiya Fuzzy with like the hair falling across her face mm -hmm. and, and you know the bit of her torso there. That 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 is sexy pinup pose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pose. Yeah, I mean I think there's supposed to be a titillating sexual threat of, you know, right. hey, her boyfriend's not in the boyfriend's body and she's like, hey, and, you know, how is this going to play out? And, you know, those scenes are always touchy. Right. Well, and but I was just thinking I would expect it to be if, if you're doing the somebody is possessing your body story mm -hmm. for a sexual couple. It's usually much more than this. And I mean, this yes, with, yes, you know, I know. in, in yeah. all in comics and in sci-fi and in, it's like, oh, was that you or was that, you know, who was that that I was with last night is the story that I expect out of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I get that it's creepy, but it happens a lot. Right. Like it's, yeah, it really it's in it's in many, many, many things. It's like, oh, yep. It, well, and, so, and then you usually it's never been like that before you need you know you have that yeah. line and stuff <laughs> well and to be fair like this is the low barness of it there are at least like three other instances that i can like name readily in which there's an evil version of nightcrawler or a possessed version of nightcrawler where he does go straight to rabiness which yeah. are much worse than this mm -hmm. so <laughs> i'm tired of that trope being applied to the character which again we talked about this way back when we talked about nazi nightcrawler and how like it would be nice if that was like a critique instead of just for titillating shock value um kind of same here but again I don't have as many issues with this as I had with like the three other instances I could name. And we actually, I think this mentioned is also one really of them quick. on the It'll be over one. next issue. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. so yeah, I don't know. Like it was a bit icky, but I've seen worse yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's the bar, huh? <laughs> well, you know, the bar is Kevin Smith, Daredevil, <laughs> calling Blackwood a slut and tossing her off a cliff. So this wasn't as bad as that. <laughs> Had to go there with it. It's a very similar scene. Anyway, uh, let's go around and do some final thoughts. I'm sure there's stuff from this issue that we didn't hit on that each of us maybe wants to hit on. So um, uh, I will start with you, Andrew. Final thoughts, stuff you didn't get a chance to talk about that you want to go back to. Yeah, I want to connect a little bit to the um, the Liana of it all. 
once again um foregrounding my bias she's like my favorite of course all, i'm happy all to comics um okay so there's a few things in this show. So we, we talked about the retcon the one thing i don't like about retconning simonson's ending for iliana was that it was deliberately ambiguous and that's kind of what made it beautiful the idea of the child who was in the armor all along is that who iliana always was is this a reconceived version was it the time paradox that stuff so i, I kind of don't like that we're trying to fill in those blanks and i think that's even a little bit disrespectful to the previous writer of the character um so that's bad on the good side there are two things that i really like in that kitty hospital scene the first mm -hmm. is when kitty says iliana you were stronger than me and it poisoned uh, you how am i supposed to cope because yeah. that is a really strong piece of continuity possibly accidentally because that relationship was always about this person from privilege who complains constantly being best friends with this person from the exact opposite of privilege who is stoic in her silence so having that acknowledgement to me is actually really cool if read in the broader continuity again probably accidentally and then the last I, thing I, was I, just I think it's intentional uh, i think it don't i think it's intentional because kitty a little earlier kitty calls herself on being a bitch she's like wait a minute why yeah. am i mad at you and so I, so i actually think that he's that he is intentionally trading on that i think that that was very much a i'm mad at iliana i'm mad at wait a minute i shouldn't be mad at iliana it wasn't her fault like i like i i think that there's a self-awareness of that to which makes me think that he at least read some of those comics yeah i think that's fair i'm i'm i'm, I'm, I'm open to it and then the last thing was just I really like the idea of Kitty talking to the sword as if it's Oyana, um, oh, which is yeah. maybe what's happening. It's not 100% clear, but like it kind of is, right? It's it's Ilyana's soul. As Mav pointed out last episode, it's three-fifths of Ilyana. So having her treat that as this substitute for her missing friend makes so much sense uh, and, and really adds an emotional dimension to Kitty having the soul sword which mm -hmm. otherwise feels like kind of a lazy plot device. Again, I just want so much for it to be more, I mean, with the sexualized imagery of the sword, with the sword merging with her body, with the images of mm. her drawing the sword out of herself and inserting the sword into herself. It's like, there is just <laughs> a fiery inferno of queer potential on the table yeah, here yeah. that is not being actualized except for in the mind of the readers and uh, yeah, <laughs> hopes and dreams. <laughs> yes how about you mav final thoughts or stuff you want to go back to i i had two we hit one already which was the the dark off quote at the end i mean we're like yeah we know we didn't tell the stories but there's a similar one that is just there are several bits in here where it's like ellis just telling you i don't want to do this story and i'm just i'm erasing it one piece of by one piece at a time so when moira says to brian wait a minute, why aren't you talking in crappy Shakespearean dialogue anymore? And he's like, yeah, I got better. <laughs> like, those are, that's pretty close to the line. Um, I'm looking for it, like, but I, but I mean, I think that that's essentially, he's like, uh, she's like, hey, what happened to, I'm not, I'm not doing the, um, the Tay, <laughs> you know, what happened to the Shakespearean speech and the ego on steroids you brought back from your, tr your trip through time? And he's like, oh, um, I won't deny it. it's taking me a while to adjust to my experiences. If I sound pleased, it's just because I got something right. It's like literally him going, yeah, I'm, I'm done with this. He is acknowledging the storyline was stupid and he does not want to do it and he does not intend to. And we talked about it. I don't think it was last episode. I think it was like two episodes ago where people were like, well, how does this get resolved? It doesn't. It just stops. It, like that that was it right there um ellis going this is fucking dumb and i and i will not write it and, and that's that that's the end of the britannic weirdness is right there it's just like yeah i'm not i I'm, i don't wanna yeah. <laughs> i don't wanna that's that's what that's what you're gonna get I don't know what Lobdell was thinking by doing it other than when he created that character, it was just like, hey, extreme, you know, like that was like literally how much thought went into it. So why put more thought to that in it? In it? Yes, I agree. I agree. <laughs> That's what happened. Maybe give us Rachel back, you sons of bitches. Yeah. I don't think I, I don't think given where Warren Ellis was as a writer at this point in his career and he would become bigger, but there's no way he had that power. Like yeah. he would have had the power to not write Britannic. Like Rachel was pulled from the board in order to take Phoenix away so that they could like they wanted to simplify things because they were trying to do this integrated thing and they needed Gene to be an X-Man and like I, I understand why they did it I disagree with it but I don't think he like I, 
I don't think he would have ever had the power to, 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 to bring Rachel back. I don't think that's got to be above his pay grade. My final thought was going to be about the cover, which we didn't talk about. So we've got Ken Lashley doing the cover. And I thought this was a great cover in terms of playing to Lashley's strengths. We've had some wild Lashley bodies on some covers in ways that have worked and not worked in various ways and been uncannily disturbing in other ways. But this cover here, you have the extremeness of his style, you know, the excess of his style, putting a million unnecessary lines on the face and the body and shine on the hair and the explosions of energy from the eyes and every single individually articulated teeth, so many teeth, way too many teeth. But for a demonic possession thing, it works really well, right? I mean, my issue with the cover is that it's taken me ages to remember the cover is supposed to be Nightcrawler. Because no, it's Mephisto. Almost... He drew Mephisto. I mean, yeah, he didn't draw <laughs> he Nightcrawler. He just drew Mephisto. And you assume that Mephisto is yeah. going to be in the comic because of the coloring and because of the styling. And, you know, he's got the widow's point hair and all of that stuff. That's who he drew. But, you know, contextually, I guess it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be Kurt. But still, I feel like it was a good showcase for the things that he does well as a comic book artist. And the color kicks ass. Like the neon green shooting out from the eyes and hot pink on a comic book cover i'm always here for it loved it i would have picked this up off the rack based on that cover kate coming to you for the final word on this one anything you want to circle back to or anything that you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about yeah and this is kind of springboarding off of your thought again going back to that frame of kitty pulling the sword out of herself and Mm. this kind of thwarted queerness and i'm wondering if in some way this is maybe a kind of weird foreshadowing of they de-queer her when she has her relationship with pete wisdom Mm. later on and and like i recall when this happened like it being like a somewhat controversial thing in fandom because all of a sudden you know precious kitty is now like in an actual sexual relationship heavens faint um and the kind of reaction to that but what i also like Oh man, there was something I remember reading in a message board at the time, which was reading that plot is like Warren Ellis as a self-insert having sex with Kitty Pryde. Yeah, yeah. And and this kind of notion here of like maybe this kind of seeds of that kind of sexualization Mm -hmm. in some ways and that de-queering and I have incomplete thoughts of that also serious puppy eyes please please let me come back and talk about pete wisdom when y'all hit one of them (laughs) puppy dog eyes (laughs) sure i had no idea you had such strong opinions on it we have several guests who want to talk about pete wisdom i just it's like the the excitement is building somehow toward pete wisdom (laughs) but yes we'd be happy to chat about it with you kate our early fictional crush man it was a thing really yeah that's see, here's the uh I, we're can we gonna pick get behind the curtain it. yeah which is when we started the show we were like who's gonna want to talk about this i know <laughs> it's just like i know i i know a number of women who had the crush mm-hmm. on pete and we're gonna have at least one of them on the podcast and it's just funny because i think it's gonna be an interesting conversation to have because we want to write it off based on the problematicness of warren ellis and the self-insert dynamic that kate just mentioned but at the same time i think a lot of young women really enjoyed that romance <laughs> so oh, yeah. i also well so, also, yeah. and, and we'll talk about it when we get there but like i just want to point out that i mean i i and i understand what people are saying right but the warren ellis who wrote the pete wisdom kitty pride relationship was 26 years old like he was a 26 year old man who'd grown up reading that character and in his mind in the story she's explicitly 18 or 19 it's not the same as looking at 54 year old warren ellis writing a story about you know an author insert with an 18 or 19 year old this is a 25 26 year old man writing an author insert who's having a relationship with um with an 18 or 19 year old it's just different and and i i think that has got to matter in ways that are complicated more by his history post that which we'll get to eventually it's a very complicated we're gonna have a lot of good conversations i think about author agency versus reader agency versus subjective reading versus intent and all of these things but i am glad that you seeded that idea kate and i am glad you made your intentions clear there if you have a specific (laughs) issue in mind let me know 
there's going to be so many different mm -hmm. complicated critiques because it's like I think some people disapprove of the Kitty Pete relationship for the wrong reasons. <laughs> oh, because they like, want it to be because they want it to be Peter Rasputin is what is what a lot of them that are, or is, they just mm -hmm. want her yeah. to be pure for them forever in their fangirl fan in their fanboy uh, fantasy. So, mm -hmm. That's a thing too. Yeah. Oh, there's a so, lot. That's There's a preview. Been a lot of ugh in this episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just, like I, gross moments. <laughs> he this is gross. such a big topic that we got into right at the end, and I'm actually really looking forward to talking yeah. about it. Batwing, snake skin. Is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in potions and petty? And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin. I'm worn thin and threadbare. I've tried to guide men or meddle in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has come for me to go. Anyway, for now, I think we will wrap things up. So, Kate, thank you so, so much for agreeing to return to talk demons, swords, and the girls who wear them best. Before we go, we need to remind our <laughs> lovely listeners of your awesome exploits. If you would like people to find you online, where can folks find you? And are there any books or projects or anything else that you would like to shout out? We didn't mention your book off the top, so if you would like to mention it now, go for it. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Facebook, um, Kate Coker, C-A-T-C-O-K-E-R. Uh, I'm also on academia.edu, not putting as much stuff there as I need to. I need to update that. Um, and then I have a book out that is The Global Vampire that came out with McFarland in 2020. And forthcoming, I have a book called Sex and Supernatural that I'm hoping to get to the publisher before the end of the year. So not awesome. good. Awesome. We'll be very excited to check that out. Your magnum opus. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much again, Kate. Thank you. Next, things stay demony, and Wolverine gets involved in Excalibur number 85, Edge of Night, in which Kitty's still bad, Kurt's still mad, and things might just get a little stabby. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow <laughs> us, like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fab YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday special which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another very sharp conversation. Thank you, Kate, for slicing through the symbolism with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Oh, just open the can of worms that is Pete Wisdom right at the end. <laughs>